Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Father, uh, we give you thanks that you entered this world as, as a child uh, to bring salvation and light to darkness. Uh, and now as we open your word, would you make it be light into our darkness, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Fleming Rutledge says, Advent bids us take a fearless inventory of the darkness. To a culture that primarily thinks of Christmas as a man who drives a sleigh and plays with elves, that statement doesn't make much sense. Christmas is a time when we often think on trivialities, naivetes, cliches, but it's not always been so. Traditionally, Advent was the time the church thought of the darkness What's wrong and broken in our lives and in this world? That in 1943, Hugh Martin, when he first wrote the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, reflected that original vision of Advents. And his original lyrics went like this. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year, we may all be living in the past. Now, Judy Garland, who was supposed to sing this song to a child, said, if I sing that to a child, the child will cry. So she changed the lyrics. Someday soon, we all will be together, if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Frank Sinatra, when it was time for him to record this song, said, that's still too depressing. So he changed the sad lyric to, hang a shining star upon the highest bough, which I don't even know what that means. But it's a really good illustration of what we've done with Christmas, is, is turn it from a time to meditate on the darkness to inane trivialities that I don't even know what they mean, what that even is supposed to be saying. The song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, itself is beautiful. It's underneath is minor chords, and minor chords for musicians know that's a sad or somber tone. But over the sad and somber tone is the lyric, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, a line of hope. It's actually a really good illustration of most of our best Christmas songs. The, the tone to most of our Christmas songs actually have a tone of darkness to it. We'll sing one in a little bit, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The music is dark, but the lyrics are hopeful. And that is Advent. Take a fearless inventory of the darkness. Why? Not in to sit in just sad and depressing thoughts, but when you are in the darkness, you look to the east for the sunrise. And that's how Zechariah ends the song. He sings the text for us this morning. The last few lines are, The tender mercy of God is going to visit us, with which the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to shine upon those who sit in darkness. 
in the shadow of death. Advent bids us take a fearless inventory of the darkness so that we look for the sunrise. So I want to do just those two things uh, this morning. I want to first take a fearless inventory of the darkness. And then second, I want to meditate on the sunrise with you. So first, a fearless inventory of the darkness. Now, uh, this song of Zechariah, which Larry read for us, Zechariah meditates on a lot of things about what's dark and wrong about our world. And there's three things I want to, I want to narrow in on. He takes a fearless inventory of sin, of systems, and of silence. If you're a Baptist, you really appreciated what I just did for you. Sin, system, and silence. So let's start a fearless inventory of sin. So let's remember who is singing this song. It's a guy named Zechariah. And we were first introduced to this guy, Zechariah, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. He was a priest. And he was chosen to do something really important. Priests only got to do this one time in his lifetime. So he went into the, the second most holy place and he offered incense uh, on, uh, to, to be the prayers, the worship of God's people. And as he goes in to offer the incense, an angel is there and tells Zechariah that his prayer has been heard and now he's going to have a child. But Zechariah does not believe the angel. And so he's punished and the angel tells him, until these things take place, you will not be able to speak. So we're introduced with Zechariah as a priest offering Worship in the temple, visited by an angel who gives him a direct revelation of God, and he does not believe it, and therefore he's punished. And so now Zechariah has had nine months of silence to meditate on his sin, his unbelief. How could I have done this? What kind of person am I? A once in a lifetime moment offering worship, an angel visits. And my response is unbelief. And perhaps you've reached that point in your life at some time. Maybe that moment's now. Maybe it's in the past. Maybe it's yet to come. Where you do something and you know that there's no no way around it. You have failed. Your life is broken. You are not the person that you thought that you were. There's no hiding. There's no excuse. You're exposed. And so this morning, I want to invite a question for you to consider this Advent season as you meditate on the darkness of your own sin, which is what in me is not ready for Jesus coming? See, the word Advent just means coming. It means arrival. And we live in a time where Jesus has already come once and we're waiting his second coming. And we've learned through the person of Zechariah, this priest who read his Bible, studied his Bible, taught his Bible, was not ready for the arrival of Jesus. And so Advent bids us take a fearless inventory of our own hearts. What in me is not ready for Jesus' coming? What needs to change? Zechariah wasn't ready. Are you? So Advent says, take a a fearless inventory of your own heart. What's not ready for the arrival of Jesus? But the second thing that Zechariah begins to meditate is is what I'm describing as systems. So he uses a word twice in this passage, enemies. It's in verse 71. Zechariah expects salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who 
hates us. Shows up again in verse 74 uh, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve God without fear. Zechariah is meditating on his enemies, which raises the question, well, who are the enemies? And the enemies uh, to Zechariah that he's referring to here was the, the nation Rome. That Israel as a country was supposed to be worshiping in freedom to their God, but instead Rome was a foreign oppressor over them, and, and Rome ruled in an oppressive way. And so Zechariah imagines when that system of Roman power is destroyed and God's people can worship under God and not Rome. And that's a really important biblical theme that oftentimes we in uh, the West tend to miss. That first part, that we're all sinners that need the grace of God, that's something we, we typically get pretty well. But the idea that sin embeds itself in systems, sometimes in, in governments, in uh, communities, in family systems, in churches. Sin embeds itself in a system. And Zechariah here is lamenting the system of Rome and the way in which it, it ruled. I don't know if you felt this, but, but I felt when I try to navigate this world, one sinner plus one sinner often equals more than two. And that's what, it, that's what I'm saying, that we need to take a fearless inventory of the system. So let me give you two illustrations briefly. Uh, first is, is, as a Christian, I believe in the human dignity of all human beings, regardless of how much money they make, regardless of what their um, ethnic background is, or whether they're in the womb or out of the womb. And as someone who cares deeply about uh, my own country representing that, that value of human dignity of all human life, um, to, to be someone who advocates pro-life causes feels like you're not just dealing with individual people and hearts, but you're against a system. And we've seen that over the last few months play out. A system that led to someone trying to assassinate a, a Supreme Court justice. Uh, many pro-life centers have been attacked violently over the last few months with little response from either the media or the Department of Justice. And that's because if... if if you go, if you try to institute a pro-life ethic into our society, you find you're not just dealing with individual people, but a system. A system working towards the devaluing of certain human life. That's one example. Another example, historically, in our own society. I just finished the memoir by Philip Yancey called Where the Light Fell. And I was shocked to discover when Yancey was a kid growing up in a church, uh, Tony Evans the famous preacher from Texas, he's also black, uh, was at Philip Yancey's church. It was crazy to think these two future, very famous authors were at the same church very young. Uh, but Tony Evans didn't worship there long, and the reason was Tony Evans was not allowed to be a member at that church because he was black. One sinner plus one sinner doesn't equal two. It embeds, uh, evil embeds in systems, in churches, in governments, that then work to uphold and institute evil and oppression against other people. And Advent time is a time to meditate on that. It's what Zechariah is meditating on here when he envisions the rule of the Messiah, overthrowing all of the systems and people who run the world in a way that opposes the way God wants the world to be run. 
And we see that in verse 69. Zechariah says, God has raised up for us a horn of salvation. And that might not, might not, might not mean much to you, but a horn is the symbol of power in the Bible. God's raised up a power of salvation in the house of David, his servants. Hopefully a few weeks in here, you know that means a king. To be, a, to be in the house of David is to be the anticipated king who would reign forever over God's people. And so Zechariah is saying, there is a king being raised up among us that will confront the evil systems in our world and will bring mercy and salvation and justice into a world of hatred and cruelty and injustice. So meditate on the systems of this world. So another question you might want to think through this Advent season is whose kingdom are we longing for? The announcement of Christmas is the announcement of a king being raised up among us whose kingdom is perfect and will reign without ends. That we don't settle for imperfect uh, oppressive systems that, that make their way into our human community. We wait for the King Jesus and his return. So we can meditate on the darkness of the world in which we live in because we know a king is coming. He's come once and done a lot, but he's coming again to set up his rule and reign on this earth. So a fearless inventory of systems, a fearless inventory of sin, and then uh, the third thing Zechariah is, is meditating on here is, is the uh, fearless inventory of the silence. Zechariah uses another word a couple of times here, and it's the word visit. It's how he starts the song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And it's also how he ends the song in verse 78. He talks about the sunrise visiting us. Zechariah is singing about God's visitation. And that's a, uh, the sunrise imagery is pointing back to Malachi 4. One of the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 2 reads, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And Zechariah says, the sun is now rising to visit us. The important thing about Malachi 4 is it's one of the last words of our Old Testament. And after those last words were spoken, there was 400 years of silence from God until he broke it with that angel speaking to Zechariah in the temple, announcing, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. A moment, as I mentioned earlier, Zechariah responds to with unbelief. That's a long time of silence. 400 years. No prophet, no new scripture, no new direct revelation of God. That's, that's a long time. And some of us, we get antsy when God feels silent to us for a few hours or a few minutes in prayer. But the something you're going to have to reckon with if you live this life very long is why does God seem silent? As C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he wrote two books on this theme. The first is called The Problem of Pain. And it's a pretty interesting academic look at how we deal with the fact that there's evil in the world and God seems silent in response to it at times. It's an interesting book. And I 
you have time, it's, it's worth your read. But he wrote a second book that was not an academic exercise in responding to that question. It was a meditation he wrote after his wife died. And he called it A Grief Observed. And it was so intense, he actually initially published it under a pseudonym because he was afraid people would read it coming from him and fear he didn't believe in God anymore. Because there are lines like this in that book. When you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember himself and turn to him with gratitude and praise... You will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. 400 years of God's silence. How long could you wait? 400 minutes, 400 hours, a year, 400 days. To take up life of faith means sitting in the darkness and waiting for the sunrise. To be a Christian means to wait. To not view God's silence as his, his absence of fulfillment of his promises, but to wait for him to speak in his time. So my question to you this morning is, is how long are you willing to wait in God's silence? Because for some of us, Advent is actually a time when silence becomes a little bit louder. That the more Christmases that, that come under my belt, the fewer people are here that I once celebrated Christmas with. There's a few more that have arrived. Um, and yesterday we got to celebrate my sister's baby shower. We'll have one more coming in, in January. He'll miss this Christmas by a month. God, unless God has other plans, which we wait till January. Um, but the more I, I enter into Christmas, the more I also remember those who are not here. And that can lead to the darkness and silence. And so I, what in this, uh, that I've shared with you this morning, what in the darkness seems most clear to you in this season? Is it your own sin? You're not the person you should be and you know it. Is it systems? Do you, do you long for goodness and righteousness to be represented in the world, but you just keep finding evil everywhere you turn? Or is it the silence of God? You, God just feels absent to you in this time, and it's been very hard. And maybe now you can see why Frank Sinatra is like, you know, let's just change the lyric to hang a shining star upon the highest bow. Maybe that's what you want to do right now. You don't even know what that means. And you're thinking, let's go hang a shining star on whatever a bow is. And some of you will probably tell me later, and I'll appreciate that. <laughs> but here's, here's the tension, here's the beauty for me of Advent. And it's put wonderfully also by Fleming Rutledge, who explains what she means by Advent being a time to meditate on the darkness. She writes this, We stand at the juncture of two ages. The old age of approaching winter, where God's own people with the world at large are frozen in sin, separation, and death. Locked in a silent room where God speaks no word. And the age to come where the glow in the eastern sky announces the coming of the rising sun. That's why the principal images of Advent is that of the watchtower. 
Those who serve God still stand in a dark place, but we strain forward with expectation and an unconquerable hope toward the horizon where the Son of Righteousness will appear someday with healing in His wings. So what I want to do now for our last few minutes together, I want to get in the watchtower and look to the east. Let's meditate on the sunrise Zechariah is singing about, the salvation of our God. Let's capture a vision of the sunrise. So Zechariah, um, he gets his name, his voice back at an interesting point. So if you, if you flip to the left, if you've got your Bible, um, in Luke 1, we kind of have this narrated for what happens. And we're told when John the Baptist is born, there's debate about what to call him. What should his name be? And uh, Elizabeth, because of uh, no doubt Zechariah's word to her, says his name is John. But in that day, you typically gave a name in line with someone in your family, and there was no one named John in that family. So people are calling him John, and Elizabeth's like, that's not his name. Or calling him Zechariah, and Elizabeth's like, that's not his name. His name is John. But they keep calling him Zechariah. She keeps saying no. So finally, they're like, all right, Zechariah, you can't speak. Help us out here. And somehow through a tablet, he writes, uh, his name shall be called John. Um, And then we're told, and I think this is verse 64, and at once his mouth was opened. Now I find that interesting because the angel said to Zechariah that once these things took place, Zechariah would be able to speak again. But here's the thing. I assume that meant the birth of the child. The child's born, Zechariah's still not speaking. So Zechariah must have wondered for those eight days, am I ever going to speak again? And the first thing, or the thing that opens his mouth is, his name is John. Which is itself an act of belief in the angel. This isn't just a name, this is what the angel told me in the temple is true. Salvation's breaking in, beginning with the birth of of my son. And his name shall be called John. And you get a sense of Zechariah's own forgiveness and experience of the mercy of God in this moment. From unbelief to his mouth being open to praise God. And when he begins to describe the salvation of God, verse 77, he describes it as the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. The sunrise that shall visit us is primarily about forgiveness of our sins. It's one reason why I'm a pastor. I'll never sit across from someone and say, I don't know if God can forgive you for that. We'll never say that. And so whatever in your own heart or your own life this morning feels broken, irredeemable, hopeless, it's not. Because as the sunrise rises in the east, it announces forgiveness for all sins. Do you believe that? Zechariah moves on. He talks about uh, peace. In verse 79, he says that the sunrise uh, visits us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, that's a, a bit of a loaded word most commentators point out because in that day, Rome was known for, for instituting the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that they viewed themselves as instituting peace throughout the world through their good rule. So the Pax Romana was a a famous phrase. Of course, if you were underneath the Pax Romana, you knew to have the peace of Rome required a lot of violence, a lot of injustice, a lot of oppression of the poor. And so Zechariah sits here at the end of the song and says, no, the true, the true peace of God is coming into the world. The true king 
He doesn't have to crush others to institute his justice. That's coming into the world, the true kingdom. Truth, justice, a good king is coming. And so as we're sitting in the watchtower in the darkness of a world where a lot of the systems we encounter just only perpetuate evil and injustice against others, especially the marginalized, we know the sun is rising for a new king who will bring perfect justice and peace into this world. And the third and final thing I want to meditate on about this sunrise is, is God ends his silence. At the sunrise shall visit us from on high is, is announcing the fulfillment of Malachi 4 and the end of the silence of, of God. God's coming to this world in a unique way. And so uh, the word visit there actually is, is, is beyond just like, you know, the pop in and pop out. Like, hey, how's it going? I'm here. I'm leaving. It's actually, it's often used uh, for like a pastoral visit from a, a pastor in that, in that day, from a rabbi to someone who was sick. Right? A sitting down, a sitting next to you, uh, an intention of healing, a kindness. And that's God's visitation to all of us sitting in darkness is that he's bringing his light into whatever makes us dark. So Hugh Martin, after he wrote the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, obviously became quite famous. That song and that movie, Meet Me in St. Louis, became uh, quite famous. And that led to uh, a struggle for him to handle the success. And over time, he became addicted to amphetamines. And it was at the very end of his rope where um, God met him in a unique way and he became a Christian. And after that, he spent most of his life playing piano for the gospel singer Del Delker. And he rewrote the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, to be a worship song. And here are some of the new lyrics. Let us gather and sing to him and bring to him our praise. Son of God and friend to all, to the end of all our days. I really wanted to sing that, to have yourself a merry little Christmas, but that would have been weird, so I didn't. Um, but do you hear that? God, God, our friends, from a guy who addicted to drugs, success didn't, didn't pan out for him, God's my friend. What an ending to the silence. So Zechariah sings about the sunrise, but we are in a different position than Zechariah who sang this song. He sang the song in anticipation of the first advent of Jesus. But a lot of what he sings about was very unclear. How can sins be forgiven? How does Zechariah get to speak again? I mean, his failure is massive. Better yet, how is, how is this king going to reign as peace? Every king who ever has gotten power over other people, ultimately it descends into violence and oppression of some kind. How is this king going to reign? And better yet, how is God going to end his silence? How can I know God is going to speak to me? Zechariah didn't know the answer to those questions, but we do. And the answer to each one of those questions is a cross. How are you going to be forgiven of your sins? Because Jesus is going to go to a cross and take on the, the effects, the cost, the realities of your sin onto himself. How is he going to be a king that doesn't crush us? Well, because he's going to be crushed for us. And the way he's anointed as king is through a cross and not through any other coronation ceremony, but through suffering for his subjects. Can you think of a king who ever suffered for his subjects? No, not like this. And how does God end his, 
his silence? Well, because Jesus took the silence of God for us and he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you know that never has to be your final cry because Jesus took it for you. He went into a tomb and was raised to new life so that we could sing, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Charles Wesley ripped those lyrics off of Malachi and Zechariah. And we, we sing those words because we sit in the position of waiting for that final sunrise. We saw the first. Forgiveness, a cross, a new king, suffering for his subjects, taking on the silence of God for us. So we've seen so much, but we've not seen the final promise. And that's hard. It's hard to sit in darkness and wait for the sunrise. Have any of you ever done that? Just sat in the darkness and then waited somewhere for a sun to rise? I'm just curious. It sounds so cool, it's really not. It's long. It's boring. And so a few years ago, uh, my friends and I, we went to Crater Lake National Park, and we got there about 2.30 or 3 in the morning and said, let's, instead of going to sleep right now, let's wait. Because we haven't seen the lake yet. We don't know what it looks like. And let's wait for the sun to rise. And that was a great idea for like 15 minutes. And it's like, this is, it's cold. The sleeping bag feels kind of like a good idea right now. Um, but we waited and waited. And when the moment came, it was, it was incredible vision. And over time, the light began to show us what we, we couldn't see in the darkness. This lake, mountains, beautiful clear water, animals all around us. We had no idea what was actually happening all around us in the darkness until the light uncovered it. And I want to say to you similarly, I, I can't speak to all what makes up the darkness of your own life. What I am inviting you to and what I will tell you is worth doing is getting in the watchtower and looking to the east and waiting. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Advent bids us take a fearless inventory of the darkness. But we don't do that because we like to dwell on sad and depressing things. We do that for one reason. To take our seat in the watchtower because we know the beauty to come. So we take our seats, we look to the east, and wait for the sunrise to visit us from on high. Let me pray. Father, for those who have grown tired of waiting... May Zachariah's story and Malachi's words bite us a little more time in the watchtower to look to the east. May those of us already waiting with faith for Jesus' return, God, may you fill us, our hearts even more full, that we know we serve a risen king who will come and make all things new. But above all, Father, we need you to meet us in this, in this space now by your presence. So we open this space for your spirit to do the work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.